Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you all at Ephesus Church. I was coordinator of ARPCA when I uh, uh, came the first time and introduced the church to our, that association and, and uh, introduced it to you, and uh, you became a member church. And uh, since then, uh, I've transitioned back into the pastorate uh, back in uh, Taylor, South Carolina, and uh, been there for the last seven years. Please take your Bibles. Let's go to uh, Psalm 96. Thank you for inviting me to your missions conference. It is definitely a uh, where my heart is. During that time in which uh, I was coordinator for our association, I, Kath and I traveled, we stepped foot in about 45 different countries, and uh, some of them five and six times, working with missionaries, seeking to encourage them, coming back to churches and uh, uh, showing their works and telling of their works and, and preaching uh, the scriptures to seek to incite and excite the people of God to uh, more involvement in the work of missions. I think it was before that. It was way before that. In fact, I think it was way back in the 80s when, when uh, God first uh, uh, brought me to Psalm 96, and I fell in love with this psalm. Uh, you have your outlines, I trust, the little papers uh, given to you, and you see there, if you look at those, uh, you'll see about 15 points. Now, don't get scared. I'm going to try to keep it within an hour and a half because I know there's a lunchtime, and I, I know that you guys will get hungry, and so will I. Fifteen points. We hope to knock them down pretty well. There's gonna, I'm going to give you three characteristics of this psalm and then four points uh, with each of those four points with three subpoints. Hope that gives you a little sense of uh, what it looks like. The characteristics of this psalm, number one, it is a psalm of joy. And when you look at it, you say, of course. Verse 1 says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works or his wonders among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. And as I'm reading this, think to yourself, yeah, this would really be apropos to a missions conference. Verse 5, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but Yahweh made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to Yahweh, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship Yahweh in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations... And here's our message. We go among the nations. What do we tell them? Tell them, Yahweh reigns. 
Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Characteristics of this psalm. Number one, it's a psalm of joy. The reign of King Saul in the United Kingdom was disastrous. There was a time when the Ark of the Covenant was lost. And that means God's presence among the people was lost. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was a chest. It was a wood chest made of acacia wood. It was, its dimensions were 45 inches long, 27 inches high, and 27 inches wide. So just to kind of round things off, it was four feet long, two feet deep, and two feet wide. This Ark of the Covenant was overlaid inside and out with pure gold. On top of this Ark of the Covenant, this box was the mercy seat between the two cherubim. And every year in the Day of Atonement, the priest would come in and sprinkle blood on the top of that chest, on the top of the mercy seat. And what that Ark represented to the people of God was one, the throne of God. It was kept within the Holy of Holies. And that was where God resided upon a throne among his people. It also represented the altar of God, or in our understanding, the cross, where the blood was shed and sins were dealt with. But it also represented the presence of God, such as we understand we have the Holy Spirit of God. So there you have the throne, the cross, the presence of the Spirit of God right among the people that was lost. And all the sadness, the grief, what will they do? God's, his presence, his power, his sovereign rule is lost to the people. Well, it's restored. And we read about it in First Chronicles 15 and 16. That's the text where this psalm is penned as a song to celebrate in Jerusalem. The ark is restored. We've got it back. It's a party time. It's a festive time. They're offering sacrifices. They got the Levite choir singing. There's dancing in the streets. This song is a song of thanksgiving, of praise to God for his greatness, for his character, for a sense of restoration and revival of the blessings of God. It's a psalm of joy. Secondly, it's a psalm of hope. It not only celebrates present joy, but future hope. We've got a future. The future looks great. The Messiah is coming in the, in the righteousness of his kingdom. There's certain triumph ahead for us. We don't have to look at the future and be afraid. 
We can look at the future with confidence and celebrate the great hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. We live each day with the sweet anticipation that our God is with us. He ever shall be with us. We can face anything that this world or the devil or any others may throw at us. And thirdly, it's a song of proclamation. And that's what we see in verses 1 through 3. This psalm, Psalm 96, is really the great commission of the Old Testament. Missions is declared here. It's the responsibility for God's people to herald forth the good news of God's salvation to all the nations. Spurgeon, Pastor Spurgeon, called this psalm that grand missionary psalm. It's saying we have the answer. We have the answer for this life and for the life to come And we cannot keep it to ourselves. We must take it to the nations. We have Jesus Christ, the way, the only way, the truth, the only truth, and the life. We must take him to the nations, this good news of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther Luther said of this psalm, he said, This is a prophecy concerning the kingdom of Christ and the spreading of the gospel over all the world and before every creature, which gospel will be a word of joy and thanksgiving, of peace, of rejoicing, and of a continued sacrifice of praise. The kingdom of Christ, it's here and it's coming. It's coming. You can count on that. As we look at these four points, under which there's three sub-points, that first point of the four is, how do we carry this great commission to the nations? Well, the first sub-point under that is, sing a new song, is what you see there in verse 2. How do we get it to the nations? In fact, three times, sing, sing, sing. Because singing is a universal expression of love and of joy. Joy fills the hearts of God's people, and when their hearts boil over with praise, it's going to cause them to be singers. They're going to sing of their great joy. And they're going to sing a new song. It's not, because, it's not saying that, well, we just got to sing a new song every week to fulfill this. It's not about singing a song you've never sung, but we're going to sing a new song because new blessings. It's the product of a new heart, of new affections, of new blessings, celebrating the new mercies of the new covenant. We're not singing about the old covenant, we're singing about the new covenant. And it requires a new song, new joys that will never grow old. And in so doing, we'll bless his name. We will bless the Lord. We will give glory to God and we will wish for that king to live long and for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on this earth as it is in heaven. We will give our blessing to him who reigns 
above. So, brothers and sisters, that makes singing in the church of God and the worship of God extremely important. It takes the people of God with this well of life springing out of our hearts to gather and to sing with joy and praise and celebration. Not just mumble words and not just go through the motions, but to sing with the joy of the Lord. The second sub-point under that is, how do we carry the great, this great commission to the nations? Well, we proclaim in verse 2. You might have the word tell, but we must proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Tell everybody. Tell everybody there is a great salvation. Tell everybody that there is a, a rescuing from the devastating effects of sin in our lives. To tell everybody that this is a faithful saying and worthy of all men everywhere to accept it. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am chief. Tell everybody. Don't hold back. Now, some of us have that word tell. If you have the ESV, you have the word tell. But the word is more than a colorless tell. It has this proclaim behind it, meaning there's exuberance. There's excitement. Because of this great deliverance we have from the terrible effects of sin. And I ask you, how are the things of God in your home today? Are they dull? Are they stayed? Have they lost their power and joy? How about in your own heart? Have you known days before in your life where you were thrilled to seek the Lord, to pray, to sing, to meet with God's people, even to have those personal times of worship where you got with God and you searched the scriptures and laid out praises and petitions before him more than you do now? Have you lost something of that? Is it more difficult? Do you feel yourself rather mediocre spiritually? Day by day. There's to be such a liveliness of the work of God in our hearts that day by day we are proclaiming Christ's salvation with exuberance and with joy. Every day. All day. First thing in the morning, last thing in the evening. Not just for gospel preachers, but for every single person who's bathed in the blood of Christ and found life and righteousness in Jesus, who has found salvation in him. Every single person who's an object of the grace of God. Pastor, some days I just don't feel like it. I don't either. And let's tell ourselves, get over it. We need an attitude adjustment. We need to get with our Christ and have him review for us and have his spirit again stir within us those things that ought to captivate us, ought to consume us, ought to make our hearts hot with love and passion for him and for his glory. 
in such a way that every day is filled with the glories of the gospel and he, Jesus, is on the tip of our tongues. The freeness of Christ, the fullness of Christ, that we cannot help but speak of him whom we've met with and know and love with all our hearts. And let there every day be this profuse sowing of the seed. Not just a seed here and a seed there, but putting our hands in the bag and grabbing handfuls of seed and scattering liberally all day, every day. That's what he's calling us to. Third sub-point under that, declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all the peoples. You see, the gospel begins with the perfections of God, his holy character, his awesome works. Everything that God has done in creation and providence, it's the wonder of wonders that one day that God came down and was pinned to a cross But he rose from the dead and he conquered death and sin. For all of his wonders, this God now reigns with a crown and a scepter and all of his will is done. His spirit's been poured out upon the people of God. Declare him. Yes, that word declare, it's the corresponding word for book or publish. Psalm 45, verse 1, same Hebrew word for scribe or writer. And what that tells us is, use every and all means we can to make known this Savior. Singing and music, preaching, proclamation and witnessing by word of mouth. Writing, letters, blogs, emails, books, anything we can. Singing, preaching, writing. Use every possible means we can to declare, to proclaim of this great God and his salvation. Second point. What's the reason for this commission? As we look at verses 4 and 5, you have to say that the reason for this, that we would take this message to the nations, is him. Him. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. That first subpoint is this Jehovah is great. Verse 4 Determine God's greatness and then bring praise to match it. In the video for Sunday school, the man Johnson who pastors among the people in in northwestern India. He He tells the men, make God great. You have 300 million gods, they say, in India. Everyone has his own God. He determines, he shapes, he carves, he molds, he makes his own God. There's millions and millions. No, there's not. And that needs to be the message we take to the nations. There's but one God. And he's a great God. Determine his greatness and bring praise to match it. We cannot praise God too often or too much. Too zealously or too joyfully. Study God's perfections. 
His sovereign majesty, his unlimited power, his glorious purity. Study God for his everlasting and unchanging love. Study God. In verse 5, it's him that made the heavens. He formed our bodies. He can disassemble them. He put our breath within us. He can take it away. He makes our, our hearts to, bre- to beat. He can stop it. He does anything and everything that is his will. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And notice he's to be feared. There is all kinds of reasons why he is to be feared. He's not to be trifled with. God is a consuming fire. He is great. He is terrible. See him as he is. As did Moses before the bush. He's trembling at the voice from the bush. Isaiah, he sees Adonai upon his throne and he comes undone. John the apostle sees the exalted Christ in heaven and he, he, it's like he died. He becomes stone cold dead in the face of the glory of Jesus Christ. This great God, his very being demands awe and wonder. And this is the heart of all true religion. It begins with God, even as we see here in verse 4. The second sub-point there, Jehovah is not only great, but he's incomparably great. In verse 5, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but in comparison, Yahweh made the heavens. Worship idols? Really? Think about that. They are nothing. But people in India worship 300 million of them. And that was true in Athens when Paul was there preaching on the Areopagus. They had all kinds of idols, gods of all types. They even had one to the unknown God in case they forgot one. They'll worship him as well. They are nothing. That's what the scripture says. They're nothing. They're worthless. They can't recite the past. They can't tell the future. In fact, when Isaiah spoke of them in Isaiah 44, talking about the insanity of it, idolatry, the the people will cut down a tree. Cut, Cut it in half. Take one of it, half of it, and carve it and shape it and set it up and worship it. That's their God. Take the other half, throw it in the fire, burn it, use it for warmth and for cooking. Jeremiah, as you heard in the video, says the idols are nothing but a scarecrow in a cucumber field. They are absolutely nothing. And yet the peoples worship them. Non-entities who have no existence. They're a figment of people's imagination. They've made nothing. They preserve nothing. They try to borrow qualities from the living and true God. But they can't. They're nothing. Someone told me once what nothing was. 
You know what nothing is? It's a zero without the rim. Nothing. The gods of the nations are nothing. And yet they'll make for themselves Mary, the mother of Jesus, or the saints of the Roman church. Make for themselves these that they think will give them some access to God or some power to live. And the scripture declares, no, that's not the case. The Pokot people in western Kenya will, they have a mountain that they've designated, Mount Intelo. And on that mountain, they conceive that that's where God lives. And they'll send a designated person up there once a, once a year, he will be a priest chosen from the people. And he'll go and meet with this God and he'll come back and, and tell the people, this God, if you want his blessings upon your crops and your animals, you will sacrifice, put some milk on this tree or sacrifice a goat on this bed of branches on, in this particular place. They'll, he'll, the priest will tell the designated prophet, and the prophet will tell the people, and they'll do those things in order to appease these imaginary gods. Among the Rindili of northern Kenya, they will have an annual fire, which they will call the holy fire, and they believe that that fire itself is God. And they'll meet there and pray and they'll dance around the fire and they'll assume that if they do everything just right, they'll make this, this God will be pleased with them. Again, to bless their, their animals and their crops. But these gods are nothing. They can do nothing. They're counterfeits. And there's no comparison that they would hold to Jehovah the Lord. The world is waiting, it's searching for answers. Every tribe and every place, and I've been to some remote places, they have their gods, they have their sense of there is something that they must worship. And they set up for themselves these imaginary things that are nothing. And it just, if that doesn't do something for you, that we have the answer How can we possibly sit upon our hands and enjoy our affluence and materialism and not take it to them? Thirdly, oh, before I go there, let me just interject these thoughts. What of us in our country with our idolatries? It's easy to shake our heads at these idolaters to cut down the trees and form their idols. Or those in Kenya, or those in Nigeria, or those in India. We shake our heads at how could they possibly form for themselves these kind of gods and bow down and give themselves to them. As if that's their hope for security or their hope for satisfaction. Oh, you mean like the kind of wood that that we make our houses with and our nice furniture or the kind of stones or rocks that we make our cars and our computers with. And do we not worship gods of wood and stone? Is that not where we go to find our sense of security and satisfaction of soul? 
And what makes us different if that becomes our idols? What makes us different than all the other peoples, the nations of the earth, who worship gods of wood and stone? Thirdly, Jehovah is gloriously great. We see in verse 6, splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Men make a pretense at being great. They dress up. Kings and priests, uh, popes, they, they adorn themselves with pomp and glory. But it can all be taken away. And it is. We dress ourselves up nice. We go to the fitness centers. We do all the stuff to make ourselves look good, appear strong. But in Jehovah's presence, there's real glory. Splendor emanates from his person. This glory, this radiance shoots out from his face. Brightness. Have you ever tried to dress up a bolt of lightning? In him, in this God, is combined might and majesty and beauty and radiance. In this God and in his heaven, there's no need for an interior decorator. His strength is not the strength of a brute, but it is real omnipotence with an elegance. It is an overpowering majesty, but with a winsome excellence. This God, there's every reason infinitely to continuously and endlessly praise this Jehovah. And I ask you, do you know him? Do you know this God, this the only God? And can you proclaim to anybody and everybody in the course of any given day with exuberant praise, can you say the Lord, this Lord has saved my soul from sin. He's convinced me of my vain pride. He's rescued me from the pit and from sin's guilt and miseries. And now, my life is about him. For me to live is Christ. For me to die is gain. My whole life is wrapped up in him. It is from him that I draw my breath. It is from him that my soul has strength and hope and joy. It is him. Do you know this God? Can you say with this judgment day confidence... I would rather have him than 10 billion of these worlds. Can you say that in your heart of hearts? He's infinitely massive, and yet he lives within my heart. Have you seen him as more valuable and desirable than accumulating houses and computers, and investments, and hobbies. What is Jesus Christ to you? Do you relate to the psalm, and is there such a living reality of this God within your heart that you can say, yes, that's what the nations need. They need what I've got. They need what makes my my heart pump 
with passion. Do we have that kind of atmosphere in our homes? Is there that kind of worship, dad, mom, with your children? Is there that kind of praise? Do you have that in your private worship that you bring to your family worship? That kind of light and heat. Thirdly, of the four, what approach men are to take in coming to Jehovah's throne? And we see in verses 7 through 9, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. First subpoint: God calls men to worship him. To give. Give. Ascribe. Give. Worship is all about giving unto God. It's not about taking. It's, it's not a spectator sport. It's about giving. In fact, in these three verses, there's seven commands. That means when we worship God, we're to be very active. He's not a celestial candy machine. The ancient pagans and the nations today would worship God to see what they could get from God. Try to avert his judgment. Try to gain some relationship with him. I'm telling you, when you look at these verses, these are the kind of discussions you have when you go to other nations. Who is God? What is he like? How can I know him? How can I have relationship with him? These are the things that you end up talking about with people that don't have a clue. This is where you start. You begin with God and what it is to come before God. Secondly, second sub-point there, what approach? Well, the sacrifices we're to bring are laid out in verse 7. Or verse 8, we're to come with an offering and to bring the glory that is due to his name. What are we to give to Yahweh? Well, glory and strength. You say, but he already has all that. How can we possibly give him glory and strength? Well, there's a difference between his inherent glory, which he possesses, and ascribed glory, which he receives. And he's calling us to give or ascribe unto God glory. That is to acknowledge his glorious perfections and to lay our adoring praises at his feet. Don't come empty-handed to the worship of God. Don't come empty-minded to the worship of God. When you come to his worship, bring a soul that's fed upon Christ, that's living upon Christ, that has your God in fresh communion where you can give to him the glory that you are bringing that he's worthy of. 
Verse 8, we're not to come empty-handed. It does cost us something. We're to come and present an offering of adoration and gratitude and present ourselves as that living sacrifice unto God. Bring to him the glory that is due unto his name. Well, how much are we to give God? Not what is reasonable. Not what we're willing to part with but the glory that is due unto his name. The rightful amount, the full equivalent. So how do you determine that? Well, consider God. Consider God in all of his infinite glory and attributes. Consider God in all of his offices as creator and preserver, king, lawgiver, and judge, and redeemer, and a father with all authority and majesty, And that incredible love and mercy and that amazing grace. Consider all of that and come unto him and give him what is due unto his name. Consider his works, creation and providence and redemption. No wonder this worship is to be continual. And we can never do it enough. He's worthy of it all. Day in and day out. Are you worshiping your God in private? In the secret place? This notion that public worship is more important to the Christian than is in private is foreign to the scripture. Listen to David in Psalm 119. He says, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Again, at midnight, I rise to give you thanks for your righteous laws. Again, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I have put my hope in your word. Again, my eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. Again, seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous laws. The scripture calls upon every one of us individually to cultivate our piety and our communion with God, to know him. If you're neglecting your devotions day by day, it's no wonder that that you struggle with, with some degree of boredom or absent-mindedness or wandering thoughts or, or finding it difficult to get a passion for the nations and to give the nations what reality you have in your soul. You, we, I must so meet with God on a daily basis and stoke the fires of his grace within our soul that we cannot help but overflow. We bring the those things to our family worship. We bring them to our public worship and to the life of the body. Fathers, teach your children to worship God. How to pray, how to give glory and thanks to God. You say, well, maybe they're not converted. Should they be saying those things? And the answer is absolutely. Their duty is to worship God. Even as it is, as it is, not to lie and not to steal. You teach them the, those moral laws of God. Teach them how to worship God. Teach them how to give God thanks for their food. Train them to observe the Sabbath day. 
that day of worship. And not just half a day, but the whole day. It's God's day. It's the Lord's day. It's not my day. It's his day. He regulates how I order my week. I give him the first and the best, the top of my life. Not only of my money, but my time. It's when I so order my week and the church obeys God that the Spirit is going to be pleased to so energize our souls and open up doors of opportunity for the gospel to the nations. He says, O families of nations, in verse 7, there's another call there. There's but one God for all the earth. All the families of nations are summoned to give glory to this one God. And notice in verse 9, the, the manner in which we're to bring such continual worship. Holiness. Holiness. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. We read in Psalm 29, Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. True worship, it it requires us to recognize the moral beauty of God. He's a holy God. And not only in the sense that he's set apart and unique from us, he's altogether different, amen, but he's a God of moral purity. He's without stain or blemish or any kind of spot. He has a beauty about him. It's like a brand new car that shines, that has a sheen. There's no smudges. There's no dirt. There's no dents. There's no scrapes. It shines. And our God shines with moral beauty. Holiness. That's why the angels are flying around the throne of God and they're crying, holy, holy, holy. That moral purity makes all of God's attributes to have definition and brightness, a dazzling beauty. You see, the kind of God we're going to set before the nations in missions. We're going to be God-centered, and we are going to define and proclaim this God is worthy of worship, the worship of every person, of every language, of every tribe, and every culture. When you see the moral perfection of God clothed in majesty, it's going to result in trembling. And that's why he says here in verse 9, tremble before him all the earth. Do you realize this immaculate, spotless purity robed in this sovereign majesty where he does all of his will? Like in Psalm 211, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. You cannot help. Even if you've tasted, you've banqueted upon his mercy and grace and you know something of of that adopting spirit in your heart of hearts where the spirit sheds abroad the love of God within you. He induces you to cry, Abba, Father, you have fellowship, you have relationship, but he's still a king. And you come before him with trembling. And lastly, number four. 
What are we to proclaim to the nations, to our neighbors, and also to those far off in other lands? Here's what we say. It begins in verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He shall judge the peoples with equity. First sub-point, let it be told that the Lord reigns over the nations. That's what we say. Notice in Psalm 93, 1, that's what we say, let the Lord reigns. Notice in Psalm 97, 1, the Lord reigns. Psalm 99, 1, the Lord reigns. Yahweh is king. He's no puppet monarch. He's no wimp. He's not a helpless old man. He is king. He's the only king. His government is active. His law is binding. He does all of his will. He occupies the highest seat of all authority. And creation testifies of the lordship of this God. He's made it. He holds it together. He makes it to to work as it does with such precision. Second sub-point, let it be told that his coming is drawing near, and it's certain to happen. We see in verse, well, look in verse 11, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice. But notice in verse 13, uh, the Lord is coming. In fact, twice he says he's coming. He's coming to judge the earth. He's going to judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. He's coming. And when he comes, he will gather all the nations before him, before his throne. Every man, every woman will be summoned to appear before his throne in that great day of judgment. The rich, the poor, the small, the great, the educated, not the young, the old, red and yellow, black and white, the living and the dead, every single person that's ever lived at any point in all the time of the earth will appear before the great judgment of God. You will be there. I will be there. No matter what you're doing, it will stop. In that moment, when he comes, men loathe this thought. That's the very thing in which they would say, oh, there can't be a creator. We must have evolved from, from the goop, the ooze. We must have, there must have been a big bang. There couldn't be a creator. If there were a creator, that must mean that he has something to do with this creation and there must be accountability and judgment. That's the very thing that causes men to say, no, we'd rather believe in evolution. But this great king is going to judge the world in righteousness. And it will be his definition of righteousness, not ours. His law, no guesswork. All men will be measured by the same standard. No bribes will be accepted. No errors will be made. He knows all men, every man, every thought, every motive. Every person will be judged by this infinitely omniscient God. He's abundantly qualified to hold this tribunal. And he says to us in the scripture, you must prepare for that day. And he ends up saying to us in our sin, turn ye, turn ye, 
Why will you die? There is a God that we must deal with. There is a day that we must face in which all the world will be brought before him. And does that not bring fear to our own hearts, but also pity for the nations who are wandering in ignorance and helpless to know the the way, the truth, and the life? Let it be told that his coming is drawing near. But lastly, let it be told that there's great joy in Messiah's reign. And we see in verse 11 and 12, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it, let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Brothers and sisters, make much of this, that this coming kingdom is not a reign of terror. This new era to come is a kingdom of joy. And all of creation is called upon to rejoice before Jehovah in his reign and in his coming. The heavens, the earth, the sea, and even the trees of the forest, clap your hands and rejoice, all you lands, all you peoples. Even when we're going through the most severe trials of life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 2, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Can you imagine those things being coexistent, overflowing joy and extreme poverty? Mix them together and there'll be rich generosity. Though disheartened with the trials of life, the psalmist would say in 43.4, I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. You see, all the, all the subjects of the kingdom of God are clothed with smiles. They have a king in which they, they trust and rest and in whom they rejoice. Our king is not too strict. His laws are not burdensome at all. They're just right. They speak to us of hygienic and hilarious health and, and hope and joy. Our sins are forgiven. We're rescued from sin's power and condemnation. All of heaven rejoices when even one, even of the poorest of sinners, comes to faith in Jesus Christ, is rescued from death. Every single one of those Indians that are singing there in western India in the dark, when they come to life in Jesus Christ, all of heaven goes crazy with joy. It's true. There is a way of salvation. There's a way to know this great king personally. And that's our message to the nations. You may know God. You may be filled with his love. You may be ready and excited for the day you die and for the day of his coming. There's a way to know him and to have him. This world is waiting. This world is searching. They don't know where to look. And oftentimes when you tell them the answer, they're going to fight it. But I remember standing on the streets of Seoul, Korea, talking to a Chinese young man that 
they thought was probably a plant by the Chinese government in a Christian church in Seoul made up of a bunch of Chinese immigrants. And I was able to speak to him and ask him, what is it that you're living for? What is it that you hope in? And he had no answers. He didn't have a God, and he didn't have a prayer. He didn't have any hope. And I could say to him, listen, my friend, I do. For me to live is Christ, and for me to die is gain. I have confidence to live. I have confidence to die. I have fullness in my soul, not because I've earned it. I'm no better than you but because Jesus Christ is the living Lord of glory and he reigns. I remember saying that to Wamanehi out uh, way in northern Namibia, just south of Angola. He was a tribesman out there and we were standing around a campfire. He was wearing a loincloth only. He looked like one of uh, uh, Atlanta Falcons' defensive backs or one of the uh, amazing physique. And yet... He had just lost his best friend. He may have been 20, 21. His, his best friend just died. And he, was, he could not let himself grieve because the tradition, the, the philosophy there in his tribe was if you grieve over someone's death, that's going to pull your life out of you. And so he is standing there fighting the grieving of the loss and yet not knowing what to do with death. And he knew that if the Grim Raper just took his buddy, he's probably next in line. And what hope does he have? And I was able to share with him, Wamanehi, just got to tell you, for me to live is Christ, and for me to die is gain. I remember telling that to young people in, in France and Switzerland and Europe and and also to young people all over the U.S. For me to live is Christ. Do you have anything better? Do you have anything that can compare? What is it that you're living for? What is it that makes your clock tick? What is it that makes you move and get your juices going? Do you have anything that's going to drive you through life and give you hope for the future? Is it not Jesus Christ? When we look at this psalm, let's ask ourselves, does it describe me and my life? Am I all in with my church in this work of missions? Am I all in? Am I consumed? Am I captivated? Am I driven? When the call is given, am I there? When a job must be done, Am I ready? May it be.